whatever chaos not making the announcement didn't cause this morning, I will probably create as I'm preaching this morning and putting up a large ladder in front of you. Some of you remember this ladder. It's not the same sermon, I promise. However, sometimes when God gives you a message, it's not just one. It's like several. And in the past, I would have just tried to preach three sermons in the time allotted. I'm learning. I'm learning. Trying to just preach one sermon at a time. So this is part two of our Monday Thursday sermon, if you will. And yes, I have to climb the ladder again. How's that? All right. Hopefully I'm not making up for the depth of sermon material with props, but we will trust that's not the case. Let me pray. Pray with me. Father God, come now by your Holy Spirit. Would you enable us, Father, to visualize in our mind's eye the reality of the truth of the gospel at a deeper and deeper level. Lord, this thing called Christianity is, a, is an ongoing daily relationship, and I thank you for that. That's what makes it different from every other world religion. And Father, as we mature, we actually become more dependent. So I pray that this morning you would enable each of us to willingly ask you, Father, take me deeper into your heart. Align my heart with your heart. Align my will with your will. Though, Lord, I know that will require a painful process. But, Father, your truth makes sense of things. It doesn't breed confusion and chaos. It speaks order into a chaotic world and into chaotic hearts and minds. So I thank you. Come, Holy Spirit, move, work, transform us from the inside out. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read the first text from this morning, if you will. You can look in your Bibles or on your iPad or phone or what have you, but I'm going to start with John 12, verses 24 and 28. This was the passage from our Monday, Thursday service. Hear the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So let's start there. This is the 
review part of this morning's message. And what I shared on Monday, Thursday, I want to share again. But this particular text is Jesus' response to learning that there are Greeks in Jerusalem ahead of his Passion Week. There are Greeks, Gentiles in Jerusalem that want to see and know Jesus. And so some of these Greeks, they go to uh, Andrew and they tell him they want to see Jesus. Jesus, Andrew gets his brother. They go to Jesus. They tell him, these Greeks want to see you. And this passage is Jesus's response. Jesus doesn't answer questions like most of us uh, are accustomed to hearing answers to questions. He often would answer a question with a statement. Um, Sometimes that statement didn't seem to actually connect very well with the question. And I'm sure his disciples at some points were like, Jesus, did you hear my question? These, these Greeks want to, they want to see you, you know. I, I appreciate what you're telling me about the laws of the harvest and a seed falling into the ground, but what about these Greeks? <laughs> so I love that, though. And that's sometimes the way the Bible speaks to us. We read and we study and we hear a passage and we may hear a passage that's preached that we've read before and it's like we assume we know what it says and then the Holy Spirit will come and just apply it in some uniquely different and more deeply powerful way than it ever had before. So anyway, that's the response Jesus gives to this particular um, question. And the law of the harvest, the law of the seed, obviously, if a seed doesn't fall into the ground, if, if, it, if it's not properly prepared as a seed and it doesn't fall into the ground and it doesn't receive water and it doesn't receive warmth from the sun in the ground, it's not going to germinate, right? It's not. But behind all that are words of a God, Jesus himself, that are prophetic and they're instructive as it describes what Jesus is about to do during his last week on earth. And it describes the way his followers are to reflect God's glory in their earthly lives. So I pulled out this ladder on Monday, Thursday, and I wanted a visual for you to understand that there are basic, there's a way the world system works. And when I say the world works, I'm not just talking about nature and science. I'm talking about the world system uh, that has the prince of the air in charge, Satan himself. And there is a way of the world. uh, And it works like this ladder. And the basic premise of this is climb and get the prize, right? Climb and get the prize. Work hard, commit yourself, blood, sweat, toil, and maybe you'll earn it. And when you get to the top, when you get to the top, what you will find is the prize. And the prize at the top is that if you, could, if you get there, you will have authority and others will serve you. Wouldn't that be awesome? So that's the way of the world. In the last couple of weeks, we have found in a fashion designer and in a famous chef that fame... Success, acclaim, accolades did not satisfy. 
and we lost two people to suicide. Even though they seem to have what the world system says you need in order to be valuable and successful. So what are some of the steps? Just a quick review. What are some of the steps to the world system? And I, I don't know all of them, but I have four A's. It might help you remember some of them. The first one is appearance. Appearance. If, if I can have the right appearance, then I'll be attractive. And if I'm attractive, then I will feel loved and I will feel approved. And that's kind of the base one, you know, the cult of the beautiful. And it's all over the place in our culture. So that's kind of the first step. The next one up is achievement, accomplishments. Work hard, do great things so that you will be recognized for your doing. That's kind of step number two. And if you get to step number two, you might get to step number three, and that's accolades. That's praise. You get praised. Oh, it feels good to achieve, and it feels good to be praised for your hard work. Does it not? Accolades, praise. But above that, above the accolades, is another step, and that's authority. See, if you can climb high enough on this ladder, you will be separated out from the rest. You may even be rewarded authority. What is that? That's control. Control over stuff. Control over those that are under you. And that feels good. And we believe that if we can get to the top of this ladder, there's the prize. Now I will be satisfied. I will be vindicated. I will be uh, seen as worthy and valuable, a contributor, a significant person. The interesting thing about this ladder is that the reason we climb it, we don't always understand the more deeper reasons that we are so tempted to climb, but there's a word in the Bible. It's the word holy. And In a simple definition, and I got to keep it simple or I won't understand it, holy simply means set apart. And as you climb this ladder, one thing typically happens in our world system is there are less and less people at your level. Lots of people clamoring to climb up the steps, but the higher you get, there are less and less people around, less community that can understand the stresses and the tensions and, and the things that that you deal with. So the effort to climb the ladder is actually an effort to make yourself holy, to separate yourself, right? To set yourself apart, to stand out. And it is lonely at the top, is it not? So we climb and we're tempted to climb and Many of us in this room have climbed ladders and you get to the top and sadly what you discover is that the bowl at the top is not full of as much reward as you thought and what you realize when you get to the top is there's the bottom rung of another ladder. And when you get to the top of that one, there's the bottom rung of another ladder. And you're on an escalator really. You don't, <laughs> you don't seem to be climbing and finding personal satisfaction and worth 
and value, uh, but you've spent maybe decades climbing the ladder. So there's another way. And Jesus modeled this other way with his whole life. Hopefully I can do this without killing anyone, myself included. There's another way. And it's the way of the upside-down kingdom. It worked once. I know it can work again. It's the way of an upside-down kingdom. At the bottom is not a shiny bowl, but a very industrial working bowl. And there's not a white linen towel of a butler or a servant, but there's a, just a, a much more ratty, dirty, filthy, crimson-colored towel that sits in a bowl that may remind you of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And if that is what's coming to mind, then I'm, I'm on target and the Holy Spirit is in the room, which I know he is. <clears throat> so what happens during this Passion Week? Jesus fleshes out what he said about the seed. God takes on flesh. That's the first and greatest condescension of the second person of the Trinity. That he would take on flesh and become a man. And enter into our broken world system. So God takes on flesh. Then we see in the Passion Week a series of condescensions in Christ. I'm going to move up here so the ladder's not in the way. Hopefully it won't fall. God takes on flesh. The beginning of Passion Week, the King of Kings. The King of Kings enters the city of kings riding humbly on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey. And that fulfills prophecy from the Old Testament that the Messiah would actually enter. He would do that. He would come in humbly on a donkey. So that's the next step down. God takes on flesh, the King of Kings during Passion Week, living out, fleshing out this upside-down value system. And then the Holy Host at the Last Supper, he takes the role of the lowliest servant. He disrobes. Note that. Disrobes down to his undergarments, wraps himself with a towel, gets low on the ground below, his head below the head of those whose feet he's washing, and he washes his disciples' feet, taking the lowest servant position and role. Yet, yet, this is the second person of the Godhead in skin. Then he leaves and goes to the garden, and the Son of God prostrates himself in total submission before his Father, and we read in one of the Gospels that his face is in the dirt. Now, the creator of dirt, who spoke it into existence, has his face in the dirt, in a humble stance before his Father God, equal with God, but not considering equality with God, even something to be grasped. And he begs his Father, Father, if there's some other way, may this cup pass. And he asks three times, This is God asking God. This is a conversation within the Godhead. 
the son having to learn obedience. I always go, how can God learn anything? He knows everything. This is the son seeing what's coming, wafting it in the garden of Gethsemane, just getting a, just getting a waft of that odor of what's coming on Friday. And he asks his father, can this cup of wrath, can, can this pass by me? Is there another way, basically? And the father is silent. And he asks again, and the father is silent. And he asks again, and the father, from what we'd gather, the father is silent. The father has already begun to turn his back on his son. You with me? Another step down. And then the ultimate step. Oh, I love this one. I got to add this one in here. He's in the garden. Then who comes? A posse. A posse comes to arrest him. And I love this. This is so cool. There are these little glimpses in scripture where it shows you that Jesus is in absolute control. He knows exactly what he's doing. And yet he seems to be just submitting himself to the evil will of men. The posse comes and Jesus approaches. He's not hiding. He's not running. He approaches this group coming with Judas at the lead. And he asked him a question. He said, who are you looking for? And they, somebody responds, Jesus of Nazareth. I think that's what it is. And you know what he says? He says, I am he. No, that's not what he said. He said, ego me." In Greek, it means I am. And when he said I am, the entire posse was knocked on their cans on the ground. All he said was I am. All he said was his name. But at the mention of his name, they're all knocked onto the ground. Now, if you were one of those guys, are you thinking your sword's going to help you arrest this guy? <laughs> really? What happened there? A small ray of God's glory emanated out of his mouth. And it knocked this arresting party on their backsides. And then they get up, and Jesus, I love it. He asks again, who are you looking for? <laughs> I love it. And then what does he do? He, he succumbs. He gives himself up. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because he understood that his role in the plan of redemption was to be your savior. And he knew that through his sacrifice and through his death, you would receive life and life eternal. So this is the picture, a king on a donkey, a host becoming the lowly servant, a son on his face before his father begging, asking, pleading, remove this cup from me, Lord, and then saying, not my will, thy will be done, and then going all the way to the cross, all the way to the cross for you and for me. He says, if anyone serves him, he must follow me. If anyone serves, and then he says, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. So the way up is down in the kingdom. We serve a king of an upside down kingdom. To love, we must learn to die. To give what, to get what we need, we must learn to give what we have. To be first, we must learn to be last. To be greatest, we must become the servant of all. And if we want to be exalted, there's only one way, ultimately, and that's for God to exalt you. You cannot exalt yourself. God even says that he opposes the proud. If you seek to exalt yourself, you seek to climb that 
other ladder, you will fall off, but it may not look like you're falling off in the eyes of the world. You will fall off when you ride that escalator and realize you have not gained worth, value, importance, significance, and you will be in deeper despair than you were when you started. If you desire to be exalted, you need to follow Jesus down, not up, down. If you want to be greatest, you've got to be the servant of all. James 4, 10 to 11, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That's James. Remember who James is? Isn't he the half-brother of Jesus? He's the guy who thought his brother was wacko, who didn't follow him, who gave him counsel at different points, and Jesus said, you know, you don't get it. And yet James later gives his heart to Jesus. Yes, his half-brother, but also the Son of God, the Savior of the world, gives his life and heart to Jesus, becomes his follower, And James is saying, humble yourself. Listen, it matters who says that. He knows arrogance. He knows pride. He didn't believe Jesus was the Savior. Now he does. What is his word to the church? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, whose mighty hand said, I am, and knocked everyone over. (laughs) And then 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 Humble yourselves up. You know what? Yeah. First Peter. Sounds so similar. I got it confused. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I kind of forgot that those two verses go together. You know, we all know the casting your cares thing because we all struggle with it. And we're all tempted to worry And it's interesting that before Peter says, cast your cares, he says, humble yourself. Maybe 80% of the reason we all have anxiety is because we're climbing the wrong ladder to begin with. And we need to humble ourselves before a mighty God, then cast our cares, all our cares on him. We need to get on our face before our father. And maybe you haven't done that recently. May I encourage you, just the physical position itself aligns your heart in a way that doing it in some other posture does not. When was the last time you were on your face before God? Casting your anxieties to him because you can't handle the truth. I want to read a couple things. <clears throat> I want to read several things this morning. I hope I can do it quickly enough. <clears throat> Let me read this one first. I love Charles Spurgeon, and I love his morning and evening devotion. I know there are others with that uh, propensity here, but listen to this. These were two devotions since April 27th. Uh, one is June 3rd. He humbled himself is the text. Listen. Jesus is the great teacher of lowliness of heart. We need daily, daily to learn of him. See the master taking a towel and washing his disciples' feet. Follower of Christ, will thou not humble thyself? See him as the servant of servants 
And surely thou canst not be proud. Is not this sentence the compendium of his biography? He humbled himself. I had to look up compendium. (laughs) Compendium is a collection of concise but detailed information about a particular subject. So what's Spurgeon saying? In this one little phrase, he humbled himself. Man, that's a collection of concise but detailed information about the character of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself. Was he not on earth always stripping off first one robe of honor and then another till naked he was fastened to the cross and there did he not empty out his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving up for all of us till they laid him penniless in a borrowed grave? How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark his scourged shoulders. Still whole self to mockery. Still gushing with encrimsoned rills. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron. And his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Spurgeon writes this. And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. Humble yourself. Jesus was striped and he was stripped on his way to the cross. Isaiah tells us by his stripes we're healed. And by his being stripped bare, we are cleansed and clothed. Even in his nakedness, even in Christ's bare nakedness, his vulnerability being ravaged in that. It's for our benefit that we, through faith in this Savior, might become the righteousness of God. He wrapped himself in a towel and soiled it with the filth of his disciples' feet. It became his outer garment so that your outer garment through faith in him might be the robe of righteousness and that you might be found by God to be a child of God covered in the righteousness of Christ, not in your ladder-climbing efforts, but in Christ's humiliation on your behalf. Let me read John 19, the other text. John 19, 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, just like the priests wore. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then John, listen, John was there and John is probably my favorite gospel because of the relationship John had with Jesus. And John noted more intimate things about Christ, including here, because John was seemingly close at hand 
to the foot of the cross. He was with Jesus, his mother. Uh, He was there watching, and he saw, likely, the soldiers who nailed him to the cross, who pierced him in the side. He saw them do this, dividing up Jesus' clothes and casting lots for them. And so he writes in verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, quote, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now listen, these soldiers were acting out of their own free will, right? They were doing their job. It was a daily thing. They executed lots of guys. They obviously divided up. They had a system of what to do with the clothes of the guys they, they, they crucified. So they divided up the undergarments, but there was this tunic, this priestly tunic that he wore, and it was woven. It wasn't pieces of fabric sewn together. It was woven. So they, its value was the fact of how it was made, and they didn't want to tear it into pieces. You can't wear a tunic if it's torn up into four pieces. So to, to maintain its integrity, they decided to cast lots to decide who gets it. I think that's ironic. Do you realize that the disciples, when they lost Judas, they tried to decide who would replace him, and they came down to two guys, and they couldn't decide which guy to pick. What did they do? The disciples, they cast lots. Why would the disciples put something to such fate and chance? Because they knew who the sovereign master of the universe was, and there's not a stray molecule anywhere in it, and who determines the lot when it's cast. Ultimately, the act of casting lots is a recognition of trust and faith in some other power, so it takes it out of the power of those casting it, so no one gets an advantage. Does that make sense? So listen, here's the creator of the universe hanging, dying on a cross, looking down at the soldiers that he's already forgiven. And what are they doing? They're casting lots to see who gets his tunic. Who's the one that determines the lot? Who has that authority? God. This is God on the cross for you. Do you see it? This is God condescending. Why does he have to condescend so low? Because we won't get it unless he does that. We won't see it unless he gives us eyes to see. We won't hear it unless he gives us ears to hear. Do you see? Do you hear? How do you keep your ears from getting clogged? Because this week you've been tempted a zillion different ways to climb the ladder. Climb the ladder, get the ring, get the prize, earn it. Earn this is not the gospel. Receive my free gift by grace through faith. And my gift is my righteousness and my life given to you and a new heart that only I can put inside of you. Receive it. But we don't just have to receive it once, do we? Yes, yes, technically, theologically, yes, absolutely. You receive it once and you're in, you're adopted, you're covered, you're forgiven. 
You're justified. Yes, that's true, and it's glorious. But then there's this process that begins because we're just reborn and we're babes and we need to grow. And this process is one of stripping, is it not? When you, a child of God, has given into the world and you've climbed the ladder and you got to the top or maybe you got knocked off because the upside, the, the ladder system, it's all about competition, isn't it? You're fighting for the top spot. You got to stand on people's shoulders to get to the top spot. You got to walk on people. You got to think you're better than people. You at least have to act like you're better, especially when you're in front of other people, because you want to be impressive. You want to be powerful. And Jesus says, <coughs> three of those <coughs> for you game show people. Here's the wild thing. Oh, I, I still have like two things to read um, and I don't have a watch. Uh, I'll go fast. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you Bible scholars know that's right out of Psalm 22. That's the first verse in Psalm 22. And in fact, you know, that's the first thing he says, like the seven things he says on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think Jesus was going, oh yeah, that's Psalm 22. I better quote it now. I'm dying. Better, better make this good. No. What is God's word? It's God's heart. It's God's heart written in words. And somebody wrote these words a thousand years earlier, David, and he wrote it into a poetic song, a psalm. And the first verse is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what the last verse is? It's a Hebrew word, but it can be fairly accurately translated into, it is finished. And I stopped and I go, is Jesus really just quoting scripture here to impress upon us our need to memorize scripture? No. God's word is God's heart in word form. And when the spirit comes and reveals his heart to you when you're in scripture, it transforms your mind and heart. Jesus wasn't reciting anything. He was expressing the depth of his heart. What was this son of God doing? Crying out to the one authority over him. His father. God, where are you? And then the last one, it is finished. That's that's the last thing he says. Interesting. It's the last, it's, it's a very accurate translation of the last Hebrew word in the Psalm, in Psalm 22. What's in the middle? In the middle of Psalm 22, is this verse about the soldiers taking the garments of the one being executed and casting lots for them. Wow. This is the Messiah, y'all. This is the one that was speaking through the Holy Spirit, through the pen of David in his music in his songs. It's why the word of God is powerful. John 19, 24 is quoting Psalm twenty two eighteen. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. He is stripped bare for our being stripped clean. Do you see that? He is stripped bare for our, through him being stripped clean of our idolatries and our pride and our arrogance and our selfishness. 
We are guaranteed redemption and renewal because of his being sacrificed in our place. He dies and, and what happens? He gives it all up, right? What happens? He's exalted. He's exalted. Oh, that's awesome. Let me read a little more Spurgeon because on June 4th, this was his devotional, received up into glory, 1 Timothy 3.16. Listen to these words. Inasmuch as he has triumphed over all the powers of darkness upon the bloody tree, our faith beholds our king, returning with dyed garments from Edom, Edom, robed in the splendor of victory. How glorious must he have been in the eyes of the seraphs, angels, when a cloud received him out of mortal sight and he ascended up to heaven. Now he wears the glory which he had with God or ever the earth was and yet another glory above all that which he has well earned in the fight against sin, death and hell. As victor, he wears the illustrious crown. He wears the glory. Listen, I love this. Listen, he wears the glory of an intercessor who can never fail of a prince who can never be defeated, of a conqueror who has vanquished every foe, of a Lord who has the heart's allegiance of every subject. Jesus wears all the glory which the pomp of heaven can bestow upon him, which 10,000 times 10,000 angels can minister to him. Listen to this. Lastly, you cannot with your utmost stretch of imagination conceive his exceeding greatness. Yet, There will be a further revelation of it when he descends from heaven in great power with all the holy angels. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Oh, the splendor of that glory, it will ravish his people's hearts. And you know what we get as followers of Jesus in this life before heaven? We get our heart ravished, don't we? And I hope this message from his word by the power of the Holy Spirit is ravishing you. I hope it's wrecking parts of you inside where you're seeing your arrogance, you're seeing your pride, you're seeing your self-consumption, your self-absorption, you're seeing it. Why do you need to see it? Because if you don't see it, you don't see him. We want to see Jesus. Only God can give you eyes. With those eyes comes a lifetime of learning how to be humble. Last story, C.S. Lewis, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Some of you already know where I'm going. There's a character in this story who becomes a dragon. He's not a nice kid. He is a self-absorbed, self-consumed brat of a boy. I'm glad C.S. Lewis chose to put me in his story. So in the story, this brat of a boy finds himself in an imaginary world, which he's still having a hard time believing is even real. But he wanders into a dragon's cave and there's booty in there. There's gold. There's all kinds of treasure in there. And he wants his, he's realizing, hey, I could do with a lot of this. So he starts to stuff his pockets and he puts this bracelet on his arm. And, and uh, anyway, he gets tired and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, He's a hideous dragon. Uh, and, and he cannot fix himself. So here's the story. He, he's found by um, Edmund. Edmund finds him like on the edge of the wood. And, and he's, it's, it's dark. He can't really make it out. But I can't remember the exact details. Um, but anyway, they have a conversation. And Edmund is talking with Eustace. And Eustace explains how he became de-dragoned. 
Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, Eustace says, a huge lion coming towards me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight wherever the lion was. Glory. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. It wasn't, I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came closer up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Have you heard that before? You mean it spoke? Edmund said, I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do it, whatever it told me. So I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever he went. So at last, we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before. And on top of this mountain, there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything. And I thought I could get in there and bathe. It would, it would ease the pain of my leg. You see, he had this gold bracelet. It was his, he'd outgrown his arms. Obviously, he'd become a dragon, and the bracelet was cutting into his, his scales, and it was painful, and he couldn't get it off. But the lion told me that I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. Then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well to bathe, but just as I got Just as I was going to put my foot in, I looked down and saw that it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as it had been before. Oh, that's right, said I. It only means I have another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs, so I scratched away at the third time and got a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I could tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. 
And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd ever been. Then he told me, he took hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As I, and as I... And as soon as I started swimming and splashed, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they're no muscle and aren't, they're pretty moldy compared to Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Edmund says, dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then I suddenly, and then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have, well, you've been undragoned for another. What do you think it was then? I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Aslan, said Eustace, I've heard that name mentioned several times since we joined the Dawn Treader, and I felt, I don't know what, I hated it. But I was hating everything then, and by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly. <laughs> That's all right, said Edmund. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. You were only an ass, but I was a traitor. Remember the first story. Well, don't tell me about it then, said Eustace, but who is Aslan? Do you know him? Do you know him? Well, he knows me, said Edmund. He is the great lion, the son of the emperor oversea, who saved me and saved Narnia. We've all seen him. Lucy sees him most often. And it may be Aslan's country we are sailing to. second person of the Trinity, willingly stripped bare, ravaged, striped and stripped so that you could be healed and clothed, received, pardoned, justified, adopted, accepted. Do you know him? Have you asked Aslan recently to keep stripping you? Have you gotten on your face because you are being stripped and cried out to him? Psalm 22 has two parts. The first part is desperate cries for help. And then in one verse, it does a 180. And all of a sudden, the author of Psalm 22 is praising God. Interesting that those are the words that come out of Jesus's heart on the cross. Starts out as cries of desperation to his father. And it ends with, it is accomplished before he dies. Stripped bare, Jesus. Through faith in him, you stripped clean. For his purposes and for his glory. Will you come down the ladder? Follow him. Follow him afresh.
Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the gospel of grace. Thank you for the good news that Jesus came to do everything I could not do in order to be approved and accepted. There's no ladder I have to climb. Jesus climbed it. He came down. He emptied himself. Sacrificed himself. Obedient even to the point of death, even on a cross. That through his humiliation and exaltation... I too might learn through humiliation, little h, very little h compared to his humiliation, that I might learn how to be godly and humble and that through my life might shine the glory of the great I am and that it might be used by you to transform hearts. Father, come, draw us in. Lord, if there's someone here who has yet to trust Christ, Father, they can, they can get on their face. They can talk to you. They can acknowledge, Lord, I'm a mess. I'm, I'm chaos. I've been climbing ladders and it's ravaging me. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be my own God. Please forgive me of my cosmic rebellion and trying to replace you. Forgive me, Father, for my sin and my brokenness. Thank you for sending Jesus who came and did everything I could not do on my behalf. And I understand that that man who died on that Roman cross was no mere man. He was God in skin. And he came and he earned for me a righteousness and he paid the penalty of my brokenness on that cross. And he rose again from the dead. And you tell me, Lord, that if I believe that he did that, that he knows my name because he created me from dust and is making, now he wants to make a beautiful thing out of me. Father, I believe you. Come into my heart, become my teacher, my master, my leader, and enable me afresh, or maybe for the first time this morning, enable me to follow you, to truly follow you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.